from the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. A very good evening and welcome to Litopia After Dark. We've got an absolutely packed full uh, show tonight, so let's get straight on and meet our panel. Beverly Gray comes from Indianapolis and she's currently finishing a fantasy novel. Hello, Beverly. How are things down there? Hello, Peter. Things are well. Brilliant. Also working on a novel for the young adult market is Dave Bartram. Dave is lecturing in fine art, and he comes from England's West Country. How are you, Dave? I'm not too bad. I've had a week of, of sublime absurdity. Sublime and technical challenges, too, which you've you've overcome, I understand. Yeah, a bit of gaffer tape and a few bent wires and we're away. Ah, we're good. We're... Gaffer tape, duct tape works wonders, doesn't it? Uh, from Fort Lauderdale, uh, known as the Venice of America, we have writer and leading lawyer Donna Borman. Donna is currently writing. No, she's not. She's finished. Let's Quill the Lawyers, a writer's guide to the courtroom. Um, other, wrong way around, actually, isn't it? It's a writer's guide to the courtroom. Let's Quill the Lawyers. Get it right, Peter. Due to be published in December this year. She's also currently working on several young adult writing projects, and she's fresh from the SCBWI Florida Regional Conference, where she's recorded a number of rather good interviews with big names on the American literary circuit that you will be listening to in future uh, shows coming from uh, Latopia. Hello, Donna. Hello. How are you? I'm great. I, I really got the inspiration I needed at the SCBWI conference to do some interesting revisions to my novel, so I'm excited. Brilliant. And um, back to England now. Richard Howes is one of the first students to be accepted for Britain's highly prestigious National Academy of Writing. How are you, Richard? How you know, life goes on, for the ride. <laughs> now, you come from Reading, don't you? Yeah, Reading. Yeah, which Americans would pronounce as reading, which is kind of appropriate in a way, isn't it? Um, and we have a very special guest tonight who hasn't been with us before, but she has been behind the scenes. She's our newly appointed and very active so far podcast officer at Latopia Writers Colony, who helps out a lot doing show notes and all kinds of other stuff too. Her name is Eve Harvey. And she writes children's novels for the 9 to 12 age group. She's completed her first novel, and it says here she's foolishly writing the sequel with no knowledge of whether the first is any good or not. I'm sure it is good. She's also a reviewer on the website right away, and she helps to contribute to the collective book blog, Volpe's Libris, which um, you better tell us what that means, uh, Eve. And, and where are you as well, geographically? And Geographically, I'm just outside Edinburgh. Um, and it's a blizzard here today. It's unbelievable Ooh, weather. It's snowing. Dreadful. Yeah, well, it's been snowing and rain, driving rain, and it's been appalling. Wow. Uh, and Vulpus Libris is uh, Book Foxes. We are a collective of um, reviewers of all types of literature. We oh. just love books. Okay, so well, that's the first thing for the show notes, isn't it? We'll put a little link into <laughs> to that website. And how, how do you say it again? Vul- Vulpes? Volpes Libris. Volpes, very intellectual. Just book foxes. I, I feel intimidated already. All right, look, <laughs> let's, let's, it's a very, very high-minded um, show tonight, actually, um, uh, because we're dealing, we're dealing with the glittering prizes, those things that apparently we all aspire to, but very, very few achieve. It's topical, um, because this week we've had uh, a couple of um, pretty big news items, actually, on the prize-giving front, the literary prize-giving front. But first of all, let me take you back. Imagine you're back at school, very young, maybe short trousers if you were Dave, I'm sure, and it's prize-giving day, or it's sports day, egg and spoon race, and you're trying hard, your parents are there, they're watching you. And you get beaten. You get pipped to the post. Little little Jimmy Jones wins, and you come second. The humiliation, the rage, the embarrassment. If you, if you think back and you're familiar with all these emotions, you will know exactly what it's like to go to a literary prize-giving evening, because that's really what most people do feel. More about that in a moment. In a, in a moment. Um, this week, we've had the Costa Award in the UK, C-O-S-T-A. It used to be known as the Whitbread Prize. Whitbread is a, is a big international brewing company, and they own a, um, 
uh, a chain of coffee shops called Costa. And if you um, if you pop into the Costa and Baker Street about 11 o'clock um, any morning of the week, actually, you'll probably see me there with an espresso. And they've, um, they've been sponsoring one of Britain's biggest, I think it might be the biggest, I'm not too sure, actually, there's a, there's a bit of competition here, a literary, literary prize, it's called the, the Costa Prize. Um, it's worth £25,000 to the winner, um, but it's worth a lot more than that in terms of prestige and usually in terms of book sales as well. So that's been awarded this week, and it's gone to a Scottish author, not from Edinburgh, but not too far away, called A.L. Kennedy. Alison Kennedy, but uh, she uh, she uses a slightly more androgynous form, A.L. Kennedy, on her books. Uh, the Dundee-born writer has got a cheque for £25,000. Her novel is called Day, and it's all about um, somebody whose name is Day. The chair of the judges was somebody called Joanna Trollope, who herself is a very, very distinguished novelist, and she said it had been a passionate 80-minute judging session uh, between all the judges, and Kennedy had won on a 5-3 to three vote. Said Joanna Trollope, it is a perfectly and beautifully written novel. She is an extraordinary stylist, said Trollope. And asked whether the novel which centres on a traumatised Second World War tail gunner was excessively gloomy, Trollope said it was realistic but not gloomy. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone who is profoundly clinically depressed, she said. It's a bit of a warning. Uh, you need to work at the novel uh, uh, a little. Uh, the judges described Kennedy's novel, which looked to the uh, personal damage wreaked by war, as a masterpiece. But critics were not unanimous. Ursula Le Guin, writing in The Guardian, praised Kennedy's gift for writing, but said the constant shifting between three narrative modes never quite worked for her. And Kennedy was last night compared to James Joyce. And she also has a sideline in stand-up comedy which she says is an analgesic for her. So I'd never actually heard of her before. What do we know of A.L. Kennedy? Well, we, we know quite a few things, because that's one of the things that you have to do, of course, when you're a prize-winning novelist. You have to give the interviews and so on, which I think for a, a number of authors can be quite uh, quite intimidating. Uh, we, we know that she dislikes talking about herself, but we also know that she has sex about once every five years. Can you imagine how embarrassing it must be to be inter interviewed by a journalist asking these questions? Um, I've lived alone, she says, since I was 17. I am slightly tired. My life is not comfortable to me, but I am philosophical. She has a reputation for writing unremittingly bleak books, says The Telegraph. She has recently been treated for depression. In interviews, she wears a gloomy world weariness on her sleeve, and she has admitted my life is not comfortable to me. And The Telegraph says her winning novel is no exception. One critic said of Day, the irritable, hopeless tiredness of her hero permeates the reader the way damp pervades the bones. Kennedy does bleak the way Russians do epic. So it's an award-winning book, but it doesn't sound like a terribly exciting read. Um, Kennedy was overlooked for this year's Man Booker Prize. That's another huge award in, in the UK. And there is a strong possibility she may never win it. Why? Well, she is said to have blotted her copybook with the organisers in 2001 when a journalist quoted her off-the-record comment about being one of its judges five years earlier. And the winner, she contended, was determined by, quote, who knows who, who's sleeping with who, who's selling drugs to who, who's married to who, and whose turn is it? Well, I, as an agent, have been along to a number of these, these award ceremonies, but sadly, none of my authors have yet ever won. And I can tell you, it feels incredibly tense as the evening goes on. You're sitting there in your, in your bow tie and your tuxedo, hoping against hope, and then the, the organiser, the person who's, who's, who's talking from the podium, looks at you and they, they look at your, your author and you think, yes, it's going to happen. And then the cameras come along and they, they focus on your author and you, just a few seconds before the, um, the, uh, the winner is announced and you know it's going to be you and you're getting euphoric and you're sitting there with the publisher and the world is going your way. And then, of course, the verdict is announced and it's somebody else sitting over another table with another publisher and another agent and you want to go over and rip their head off actually you really do it doesn't it's just it's, a, it's the worst thing in the world so how do we feel about this this whole literary award and literary prize phenomenon and um, is, is it the, uh, the rather corrupt regime that we suspect it is or is it actually just a load of good fun and good for book sales who'd like to dive in first i um i i i think that the prizes are a, a great uh, I, I think it's good that there's some way of uh, 
getting books out there and into the greater public. Um, I do have the, the concern that it all gets all kind of Oscarized, and, and it is, uh, as you suggest, that there's some nepotism going on, some sleeping around, and, and the who's next philosophy. Um, I was uh, talking, trying, trying to ship a, a book off to my mum this evening, actually, that I'd just finished reading, and uh, she was like, well, who's who's this writer? And I was, you know, oh, well, you know, he, he has won the Pulitzer Prize for this. And she's like, well, that's a turn off immediately. So that there is also the, the problem that, you know, you suddenly become too highbrow, um, depending on what prize you won. I, I don't imagine the cost of the prize is going to make anyone too highbrow for, for readers, but <laughs> certainly it's a turn off for, for mum, all these people who are up themselves. Uh, as, as she puts it, um, I... I saw in on on the bbc news website that al kennedy had won and i just assumed it was a bloke certainly the picture that they've used was kind of androgynous um so that was a bit of a shock when the person i worked with said no 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 it, it's it's al kennedy it's not al um but uh, as i said to her i was kind of hoping that uh, catherine o'flynn would win because she'd uh, she was being supported by our naw course and she'd come and give given a master class so we're all kind of behind her and unfortunately, she she didn't. So I yeah, I don't care about this androgynous woman man thing. Well, let's let's get this right, Richard. So you know, you, because you you've met one of the shortlisted authors, you you were supporting them. It had nothing to do with the literary merit of the book That's itself, good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so why do we want to read a book uh, that's going to make us feel depressed, uh, and and really down you know we're going to sit our wrists by the end of the book do we really want something that's like that or do we want something that's that broadens our minds but is also a, a, a bloody good read and and also certainly the point with ursula Le Guin saying um that she herself was a, a bit troubled by certain aspects of it surely a book that wins should should kind of get a hands down agreement from everybody if it's that good to, to win the award. I, I don't know what the others think. Well, are, I mean, are these things fatally flawed from, from the outset, really, do you think? I suppose so. Yeah, it's, it's never really the, the one that should win or that you want to win, is it? Um, yeah, I mean, the only ones I want to win, of course. I mean, I, I, everyone comes at this from a, a possibly, you know, a sort of a completely compromised position. The only ones I ever want to win, of course, are those that my clients have written. Um, I mean, is, is, is it possible, even possible, do you think, to be, to be a judge and to be completely impartial in these things? I, I suspect it's not. Oh, I wouldn't think so. I think it's like the uh, skating and the gymnastics in the Olympics. It's very subjective. Yeah, it's Unlike, say, speed events where, you know, you're being scored against a, a given standard. You know, it's basically a speed thing. So I think you have to have the right attitude going into something like this, mm. whether it's the Oscars, whether it's a book review you know a, a book award that yes it's a wonderful accolade if you get it it it's an accolade if you if you're shortlisted but i don't think your entire literary career should hinge on whether you get the thing or not but it does i mean you know the the, the problem is oh, it, i understand it, I, it, I said i don't think it should i, I realize yeah. that in the real world yeah it, it has a lot of cachet to it well, in, in the UK, millions of people now have, have heard of, um, you know, the, uh, they always hear the winner of these prizes. I mean, um, just some facts and figures. Again, just in the UK, but scale it up and you've got the same situation in the States. Graham Swift um, wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Last Orders. It, it, it sold 285 copies, 285 copies. He then went on to win the Booker Prize for it. And the book sold 33,000 copies almost overnight. Big difference. The Orange Prize, which is another prize in the UK, just for, just for, for women um, authors. Um, a novel that had sold only 2,000 copies to date, won the Orange Prize, immediately sold 75,000 copies. It is such a big deal, actually, that publishers are accused of being dishonest. Let me just um, uh, quote to you a little bit from... The Daily Telegraph. Some of Britain's biggest selling authors have accused publishers of massively misleading consumers by falsely portraying books as literary prize winners when they have not actually won any awards. Dozens of novels, which are currently in shops, carry marketing slogans such as winner of the Booker Prize and winner of the Orange Award, despite not even having been shortlisted for the accolades. Those are under the author's name, and those authors usually have received awards, so I think that's fair. Uh, listen, I went, at the SCBWI conference, I interviewed Sid Fleischman, who uh, won the Newbery, and David Diaz, who won the Caldecott, and both very nice, down-to-earth guys, 
but those were life-changing awards for them. It, it gave them opportunities that they didn't have before. Sid Fleischman has written about 60 novels in his career, but didn't really have that kind of attention until he won the Newbery. Yeah. Um, I think that it's a great opportunity for writers, and, and his books justifiably say, all of them say, by Newbery Award winner Sid Fleischman or something similar, and I would be more inclined to read books written by somebody who won the Newbery. Yeah, so it's like a seal of approval, really. Exactly, and I yeah. know they really won the Newbery because they actually have a seal on it, so if it doesn't have that seal, I know that they're talking that the <laughs> author won. I've been thinking about the whole business of this, looking at the the disparities between things like uh, celebrity judges and, and authors as judges and the whole kind of crapshoot of it. And it occurs to me that um, there's actually quite a good thing, you know, maybe a, a good novel like Last Orders gets put into the public awareness by winning a prize. So maybe people are made aware of a book they wouldn't otherwise look at. So there is a positive thing to this, providing they're good books, of course. Um, I think the downside, of course, is that it's a very subjective opinion of a very small number of people, and you're bound to end up with a certain kind of uh, literary, uh, what's the word, kind of levelling. Mm. You know, they're going to be looking for certain things and certain novels that fit in certain ways will win certain prizes. You know, Angela's Ashes was renowned for it. It's powerful misery, uh, presumably in the same way as this, this more recent winner is. Um, if the book's as miserable as her life sounds from a biography on the on the uh, website, it must be a very, very uh, miserable book indeed. Well, she's a stand-up um, comedian too, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'd like, I'd like, I'm more interested really in seeing her do that than, than, than reading the book, to be quite frank. Yeah, you could have a nice kind of ta taking kind of rather miserable irony that could be very funny in stand-up. It probably... <laughs> drag you into the depths of despair when you're on the on the written page but it, it is an interesting idea prizes for books um does it make much difference i don't know if i was listening to an author's view on a book i'd take ursula leguin's word over joanna trollope's any day in terms of whether something's any good or not but that's my view and certainly when i was big into science fiction as a as a younger fellow in short trousers um uh the that something had won the Hugo and or Nebula Awards would yeah. catch my attention. It'd be a big deal, wouldn't it? A yeah. genuine seal that this is a good book, you should pay attention to it. Marianne D says in, in our chat room at the moment, um, which is uh, reasonably active, says Kate Grenville recently said that the Orange Prize had totally changed her life because up till then she was trying to make it in Australia with its relatively small population. And the Orange made her an international star. She had decided she'd written her last novel just before she won. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it has, it has a positive effect for these people, but, I mean, I, you know, I go back to my, my own particular bias here, which is, you know, you, you, you're sitting there afterwards at the table, and you're sitting, I mean, looking at the publisher and looking at the publicist and looking at the author, and you are all so crestfallen, it's, it, it beggars belief, really. And then, of course, what happens then is you start to think um, like... Um, A.L. Kennedy, and you start to, to, to think to yourselves and say to yourselves, well, you know, it's a put-up job, it's all fixed, who knows who, who's sleeping with who, who's selling drugs to who, who's married to who, and whose turn is it? That's, that's the problem. Well, you, you need to, you know, get on in there and give one of, lamp one of them in the face with, with a glass, wine glass or maybe a bottle of champers and, uh, you know, get the police involved. I'm sure it's happened. Involved, I'm sure it's happened. Eve, let's bring you in at this point. What uh, what are your thoughts? Oh, well, I um, certainly consider. I think everybody's said everything that I wanted to say about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can go home now. For me, <laughs> yes. Um, for you certainly, prizes mean <laughs> <laughs> prizes mean sales, I suppose. And as yeah. a writer, I have to see that as a good thing. I mean, it certainly it translates into sales. I think just the system seems so wrong. Um, and unless I was trying to think of a solution to the problem, you know, I like to come at it from a solution and idea, but um, unless the media invest more money and time and effort in promoting literature, like, you know, more Richard and Judy Yopra type things, um, undoubtedly the prizes are still the key to getting your work noticed. You know, I, I think there's no, there's no other way around it. Um, and I do agree that they're angsty and a nightmare for everybody involved. Oh, I, I was just going to say, rather than count on it, that that was the point I was trying to make, was if you go in it with the idea of, yes, it would be fabulous, 
uh, you know, like a gold medal would be in the Olympics. But if you go in assuming you're going to get it, that sets you up for a fall. You know, you have to take these things in the reality in which they work so that, yes, it's fantastic if you get it, but just because you didn't get it, you're probably still a good writer. Someone believed in you enough to publish you. may take longer to get your voice heard, but at least somebody is listening. Well, now let's inject a, a little bit more controversy um, into this, and because I said it's, it's quite a big news week as far as prizes are concerned in the UK. And the second news item this week is that Nestle, who's an enormous great international uh, they're not chocolates anymore, actually. They're very, very diversified, I think, essentially food-based company. They necessarily have, have decided to discontinue supporting the Children's Book Prize run by Book Trust, which they have supported for quite some time, many years, actually. Now, what happened at the end of last year was, and I just quote from um, uh, a press release, children's author Sean Taylor uh, was announced today as the gold medal winner of the Nestle Children's Book Prize for his book, When a Monster is Born, illustrated by Nick Sharratt, which is published by Orchard Books. However, in an open letter, Mr. Taylor indicated that he would not accept the prize um, for the award, which is sponsored by Nestle, um, because of questions surrounding Nestle's marketing of breast milk substitutes. And he said, um, I do not feel able to accept the prize money. Um, now, there's been um, a long-standing campaign against um, Nestle for this by a group called Baby Milk Action. And they say, uh, Baby Milk Action is concerned by Nestle's record of aggressive marketing of baby foods, which contributes to the unnecessary death and suffering of infants around the world. Companies should be abiding by international marketing standards adopted by the World Health Assembly. But Nestle, the market leader, continues to produce systematic and widespread violations of the marketing requirements. These are defended at the most senior levels of their company. And Nestle is also um, accused of failing to act on reports of child slavery in its cocoa supply chain. Now, Nestle have been sponsoring this, uh, this, this prize for a, a long time, and I suspect, actually, that it was the final straw when, when Sean Taylor refused to accept the money. And I, they probably felt, well, we, you know, there's nothing we can get out of this anymore apart from bad publicity. But how would you feel, how would you feel, authors, if you knew that you were going to, or had been, in fact, awarded a prize by a company such as this? I, mean, I think if, if, if I'd won personally, I'd have taken the money and then I'd have put it into the, uh, the charity and, and used the money to, to raise awareness against Nestle. I, I think um, what they are allegedly doing uh, if it is true, which I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that it's true because I, I hate big corporations. Um, uh, I, I, I believe that, that they are doing that and they're causing pain and, and suffering to others. And I, I think that they should stop. But by, by the way, that they just pulled out of the, uh, you know, supporting the, uh, the prize. Um, of course, it's quite a lot of money, you see. I mean, get, getting this, this prize going and organised and so on um, involves quite a lot of money. It's going to be very hard, I think, for Book Trust to replace. So we might be left with, without, a, without a major children's book prize. I'm sure some other philanthropist will step in. and No, probably not, because um, they're all greedy sods. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just ha having looked, looked at those, um, those articles... Um, with like a picture of the baby with with the uh, little tag around their arm and the little Nestle symbol on on the tag. Yeah, it's kind of it just reeked of Max Barry's wonderfully satirical Jennifer Government. Uh, I don't know if you've read that. Um, it's it's about um, how people are born into a company. So your surname is the company who you're born into, and therefore you will work for. And of course, Jennifer Government works for the government. And there's um, Jimmy McDonald's and. Oh, it's, it's a brilliant book, but it, 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 it kind of just reeks of this whole Nestle incident. Yeah, but with, with the, the prize itself, it's, it, it is a shame that it, it, it all gets pulled down, but you can't let the corporations win, can you? Sean Mulder says maybe JK, and we know who JK is, could donate some millions to the Children's Book Prize instead of using it for lawsuits against fan fiction. That's a good idea. Well, I think that... You have to look at the prize itself and not necessarily the sponsor. The prize seems to be done by an organization that um, is worthy and, and really means well, and they're just sponsored by a corporation. 
but I think also if you're going to accept the prize, you have a little bit of a, a moral duty not to denounce the corporate sponsor because they're going to have no motive to sponsor these prizes anymore if, um, it, because of their purpose is to get good publicity out of it, obviously, and to promote the corporate name. So if you use that prize to denounce them, it seems to me that if you disagree with their policies, the more appropriate thing to, be, to do would be to take their money so they can't use it for evil anymore and quietly donate it to some sort of a charity or something that you really do believe in. It's an interesting um, issue of ethics, really, isn't it? I mean, can you accept the prize without uh, acknowledging the sponsor? It's it's tough on that. I, I would be inclined to say that, no, you, you couldn't really. You can't separate the two, can you? Because it's their money. And there's a profound irony, isn't there, in, in Nestle, given their alleged track record in the third world um, donating money to a children's book prize they don't care why are they doing it to try and get good publicity all it does is highlights what they're doing elsewhere to other children who can't afford to buy the books they're sponsoring prizes for it's all gone horribly quiet so jump in again with something else I'll I'll make something else up we take out the gaps we take out the gaps don't worry I think an author, you know, it comes down to whether you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, and this one author obviously is. He he saw an ethical dilemma. He chose not to accept the prize. I think the idea of taking the money and donating it to charity is also a good one, but it, it it's going to come down to individuals against the corporation, as it always does. Final line is you have to be able to look yourself in the eye in the mirror. You know, you have to do what seems to square with how you you think your own ethics are i was trying i was trying to work out which side i would be on and both arguments seem seem good to me <laughs> um there i think i would probably yeah. <laughs> come on you got to get off that fence <laughs> no i was i uh, thinking it, personally i would probably take the money and do some good with it i think but i probably would still sh- shout about how bad Nestle were at the same time after I'd taken their money. Um, oh, thanks and for the something. money. I'm going to use it against a lawsuit for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one solution, Eve. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. yes. Uh-huh. I think I would take the money first and then denounce the company and, and use the money to do some good about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like selling your soul to the devil and then giving all the money that's to the monastery, isn't it? Yes. A little bit, yeah. Just confirms how desperate authors are to win these prizes, actually. Take, take the money. Get the money first. Get the money. Yes, get the money. <laughs> no, I, I mean, talking about the, the, the little boy coming in second and everything, I'm saying there, you know, for a lot of us, Peter, it's we're not even in the race yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, these things change overnight. They really do. Uh, what you also get, if you if you happen to win the uh, Nestle Children's Book Prize, of course, is you also get their PR company, uh, a company called Spreckley's, who specialise in crisis and issues management. And Spreckley's say, all businesses face problems at some point, and the best strategy is to be prepared. We can help clients devise a crisis and issue a crisis and issues strategy plan, as well as providing counsel and advice when incidents arise. So you see, um, you're already part of the game, really. Um, that, and that's, that's the problem. You, 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 you factor into this, and you're part of that crisis and issues management strategy. I don't know. You have to think about all the good you could do with the money, and taking it from a company that you disagree with gives them less money to spend on the bad things that you disagree with. How much yeah, money is the prize out of, of uh, Lottery tickets. <laughs> That's a lawyer's argument. <laughs> isn't it? Put the money in, into lottery tickets, uh, and then if you win, then you've got more money to give to charities. But only if you win, then you've got more for yourself. I don't know. I, I thought agents were ruthless. Blimey. <laughs> Yeah. They, maybe the part of their prize could yeah, be like a year's supply of um, infant formula or something, you know, <laughs> with, with, without any sterilization equipment or instructions. And, uh, you know, that would kind of seal the whole thing quite nicely. How much is the prize out of interest? It's £25,000. So to Nestle, that, that, that's like what they find down the back of the sofa, isn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah, it's breakfast. It doesn't make much difference, yeah. yeah. Um, Nestle won a global internet poll for the world's least responsible company. 
coinciding with the World Economic Forum in Davos in January 2005. Nestle received 29% of the votes. This is more than twice that of joint second Monsanto, who one of my uh, favourite companies to hate, actually. I think Monsanto is an extraordinary company. And Dow Chemicals of Bhopal Infamy, each on 14%. So, you know, you've got to think from your point of view, actually, from the author's point of view, do I want to be associated with, with a company like that? Might, it might rebound. Go to my kitchen now, and I'm going to take all the Nestle stuff off the shelves, and I'm going to eat them, so I don't have any left. In. Yeah, but then you might have to pay an extra allowance on your plane, Ricks, when you go to New Zealand. Oh, that's, that's the point. I mean, the other thing is, with these prizes, maybe somebody should do what the KLF did with the Turner Prize back back a bit, where the winner of the Turner Prize had also to accept a prize from the KLF for producing the worst art of the year, or the KLF would burn £1 million in cash. What? And if you recall that no, one. No, I don't. What, what's the KLF? KLF is the Copyright Liberation Front, oh. who believe that intellectual property is actually some kind of terrible crime against humanity and uh, one of them is, fam- is is made his money initially from that rather interesting Lord of the Rings poster which is kind of a drawing of Gandalf and hobbits clustered round him and they put up this prize uh, for the Turner Prize winner who was Rachel Whiteread that year for Ghost I think and House and um, the winner had to also accept a prize for producing the worst art of the year uh, otherwise they would literally torch one million in cash so maybe a bunch of agents and publishers should get together for an alternative worst book prize to be offered to the winner of the Orange Prize or, or something like that That's as well. a brilliant idea. How fortunate I am that I just thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's, there's intellectual property is there. That's my Absolutely. Idea yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on. Dave, um, Dave mentioned a few moments ago uh, uh, something very topical. Um, misery Memoirs. Addicted to Misery is, is the title of a fascinating uh, blog piece here by Alex Forsyth. Uh, Co. UK. Misery memoirs, we've all seen them in airport bookstores. The genre probably um, started in something uh, around 1995 when Dave Pelzer's book, A Child Called It, came out and turned into an enormous, uh, enormous success. A misery lit was born. Miseriographies is the name that uh, Alex Forsyth has given to them. I'll just quote. He says, The miseriography movement was kick-started by the success of Pelzer's book in 1995, although the genre was arguably evidence earlier. Since then, countless books have surfaced, each with their own, quote, harrowing story of redemption. The publisher Hodder, that's a UK publisher, uh, deals with the majority of them, but was silent when approached on the subject and did not return any emails. Their cover designs are comfortably homogenous, usually a soft-focused photo of a child, gazing into the distance from behind a title scrawled in a child's handwriting. The titles range from Christopher Spry's sentimental Child C to Stuart Howarth's unpleasant but unintentionally darkly comic Please Daddy No <laughs> followed by short descriptive taglines inevitably including the words damaged, quote struggle, quote abandoned, quote and other equally emotive buzzwords Each book purports to be more shocking more harrowing or more inspirational than the last anxiously trying to stand out from the miasma of misery and earn its place as a bestseller Um as public demand continues to grow, some authors, and I think we've all heard of this, have decided to be liberal with the truth. James Frey's A Million Little Pieces, a harrowing tale of drug abuse, was redubbed A Million Little Lies by the media, and it turned out to be a fabrication. Interestingly, Frey had previously submitted it as fiction and had been rejected by publishers. It was only picked up when it was sold as a shocking true story. What do we think of this of this genre? Is this something we're ever prepared to do? And why are people so interested in, in any case? I don't people I know love it. It's just an extension of soap operas. <laughs> people love soap operas, have for years. Um, I don't know if it's a case of, well, you know, my life stinks, but at least I'm not living this. Or it, it may be just like the uh, when you're driving down the road and there's an accident, and you you slow down to look at the accident. And it, it's a kind of voyeurism, isn't it? Yeah, um, I, I read the, the the first book, a boy called it by Dave Pelzer, and I read um, another one by uh, a woman called Tori Hayden, who's like a child psychologist. Um, you know, and it, it, it's it's horrific. And I read it because I wanted to kind of just understand a bit more about exactly how these things are. But then you get to the point of, well, I can't learn anything more from this. There's 
hundreds upon thousands upon millions of people who have to go through similar situations and and nothing's changing from the release of these books and I'm not learning anything more I'm not growing as a person and there is far more interesting things out there to, to kind of pick up and read and learn from I see I see from the chat room uh, Dave has just <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to steal this Dave from you as well uh, he's just come up with the title Misery Me he said my title I thought of it Misery Me well, that's a very good title actually yeah, um, Dave. Yeah, it, it's it, it is it is it's rubberneck publishing, isn't it? Um, rubbernecks for rednecks. I don't know. It's it it is remarkable <laughs> when you when you <laughs> we've got rednecks too, by the way. It's not an oh, exclusively yes. USA property. You know, oh, yeah. we've got lots. No, it, it comes um, from mum slapping me on the back. Don't be nervous. Yes, as opposed to other things. Rich, um, Richard's just posted a great title: "A Mummy Took My Fingers." <laughs> Now, Sean and Modra, have- I was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, I think we could write a really collective good book here. We, we I, it, I, was, I don't know whether it's true or not, but my mother, my mother always told me my father was one of the people who invented the birth control pill, which is possibly true because he was a pharmaceutical chemist and he worked for Pfizer's in the 50s and 60s. And the story goes that my brother was one of the early experiments but I don't know whether this is true or one of those strange things parents say to you to, you know, screw around with your head. I, I really don't know. Yes, they that do. would be a, a, a good one. I was a failed experiment <laughs> in my father's lab. It would be good. It would work. It would really work, I'm sure. But it's, it, I just love you walk along this section and, and it might as well just say, you know, um, screwed over people or... or, or mucked up lives and says it has all these Damaged crazy good. titles Damaged well it goods. is but they're, they're all it is but they're all filed under the entertainment section which is quite bizarre <laughs> yes but people like well, these but when you think well. about the, the interest in, in Anna Nicole Smith and Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears I mean yeah. the you wait for Heath Ledger the attention to celebrities in trouble seems to be tracking with the same thing of the misery idea and, mm-hmm. and it, it I don't know. It just seems very interesting that you have this track going. Eve, have, will, you, will you admit to ever having uh, bought one of these? Yes, I did the first one, the Dave Peltzer one. I read that and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I wondered what I was doing reading it. It was it was awful, absolutely awful. I, I, I just don't up. like these. Oh, I just don't like these books at all. They make me cringe um <clears throat> but i think it's all spiraling the same way as everything else the next one has to be bigger and better and more depraved and more grotesque and we're in a situation where the last one you know if it was as close to death as possible then your story better be written from beyond the grave or you're not going to get a deal for it um i just think it, i i just think everybody's coming up with worse and worse and worse things and you have to wonder if, you know why? Why do you have to write about these things? Well, because they sell. Uh, because they sell. That's the thing. I mean, it's you know, it, it's uh-huh. one of the biggest genre categories around. Ishmael Bear's uh, "A Long Way Gone." Why there's this question mark over how how long he spent in the army as a kid, whether it was two to three years or whether it was two to three months. And I can understand if if the pub- publisher and and he as the writer decided, well, you you were only in it for two to three months, and you know, we can't really sell the book on that because you know, it's more like a kiddie camp for that long isn't it you kind of killed that many people and so we'll just extend it out to two let's let's go for three years no one will ask any questions and it'll it'll be the most horrific story possible um and then of course it it, people start to ask questions and rather than them saying okay there seems there there does seem to be a discrepancy It, it doesn't change the fact that this the story is in the whole true, but yes, the, the dates don't, haven't tallied up. You know, they, they, they just then go to the point of, um, let's not admit any truth, because if we do, the journalists are going to pick up on that and say the whole thing's false. So they kind of got themselves down and down into this blind alley, and they can't get out of it without having to admit anything. Donna, let's have your common sense view on this. What worries me is I think we're raising a generation that doesn't know fiction from nonfiction. We have something here uh, called the Florida Comprehensive Achievement Test, and I'm going through that right now with my fourth grader, and they have a writing portion this year. And I don't know if you guys are plagued with that over there, but in the United States, these tests have taken off like wildfire. 
um, they're teaching them really bad things about writing. They have an expository section, which in my view is pretty much nonfiction. They're supposed to write essays on various topics. And they actually teach them to embellish, to fictionalize, to make things up on these essays. So I think the next step is going to be college essays that are fictionalized, embellished to make them more interesting. And then what's next? Uh, it's going to be nonfiction. That may be what we're seeing now, some young folks coming out of a system just like that. Yeah. Extraordinary, actually. I already I'd... there to some extent. Um, if you look at our press, what we went through a hundred years ago in the days of the yellow press, well, uh, print and media cleaned up their act. We had some solid journalists in the 1950s, suddenly we're hearing stories of, of people who have to give back the Pulitzer Prize for a newspaper article about some poor little boy drug addict on the street, and turns out she made up the story. So it, it's not just ha happening now. This has been building for some time. I mean, um, all you have to do is, is watch some of the presidential stuff going on over here with the campaigns and you know there's there doesn't seem to be any integrity in journalism right now uh, there's an awful lot of uh, you know I mean they, they make comments about Hearst and Pulitzer these editors who used their newspapers for a bully pulpit well modern day journalists do the same thing this they're not the editor they're a journalist but they they create the news, they embellish the news, they make the news, they make the story if there isn't a story. So it is a concern to me too, Donna. Well, I think they're teaching kids terrible stuff. Uh, don't even talk to me about what they're teaching them on the fiction side. It's, um, they're, they're developing some really bad habits in writing with these standardized tests. Well, standardized tests have never been useful or successful, in my opinion. So it, it always bothers me when we go through these phases where we're going to standardize everything and, you know, teach to the median. And yeah, but if you do a test... We just you, keep you can, cycling through that. You can give a prize then, can't you, if you have a test? And then we're back to, <laughs> back to the prizes again. <laughs> Part of this, this, this kind of misery memoirs thing, they're getting more and more extreme. It's, isn't it symptomatic of, of compassion fatigue as well? This idea that we've got used to this mm -hmm. kind of news and we've got used to that kind of thing. So people need to bring out more and more extreme things in order to get the same reaction they'd have got to, to something far less uh, of note oh, absolutely. 10 years ago. Absolutely. There's a desensitizing that goes along with it too, Dave. I think you're absolutely right on that. And I think that does go back again to the kind of the comfort zone things and, and this kind of vicarious kind of emotional experience. As writers, if we draw it vaguely back towards the area where we live, um, there is this kind of ethical duty again, isn't there? We do have a responsibility to an extent to try and attach good ethics to what we write about. I, I try and avoid the word morals because that implies all sorts of things that I don't want to get into. But when you know, when you analyse the ethics of of a of something, hopefully you're reaching for something a little bit more substantial than when you're talking about morals. And interestingly, I, w I was shown a book jacket by a student uh, today. Um, apparently there is a child's easy reader of Mein Kampf out called no Mein Kampfy Chair. Which I thought was quite My <laughs> gosh. Uh, really? Uh, I don't know. I just thought it was hilarious. Adolf Hitler standing by a rather <laughs> overstuffed armchair with Mein Kampfy Chair. Oh. I thought that was great. Oh. Uh, Richard, Richard's come in with um, with another entry in our misery memoir title contest. He's he's come in with Daddy was Mummy's Mummy. Which, <laughs> it's very it's very Richard somehow. <laughs> uh, right, en enough of this. Let's have a flight to quality, shall we? Let's um let's let's do our regular round robin uh, and ask everybody uh, what you know what they they're going to put their name to in terms of recommending some media. It doesn't even have to be a book, actually. Uh, some, something that they've um, seen or become aware of fairly recently that they would like to recommend to all our listeners. And I'm going to kick off. I don't usually uh, take part in this, but I'm going to kick off very, very quickly and just say, 
and this might be very controversial, just saying that um, uh, I went along to see Beowulf last night in 3D at IMAX, massive great screen, biggest screen in, in Britain, and thoroughly enjoyed it. I th- um, I've heard a lot of bad things about it, but um, I thought it was an excellent uh, adventure. Very, very entertaining film indeed. would recommend it, especially if you've got a couple of young boys as well. Um, who, who should we call on? Beverly, what would you like to bring our attention to this week? Well, I think I'm going to follow suit and uh, recommend a movie. Went and saw the second National Treasure. Enjoyed it very, very much. It's uh, just as much fun as the first one. Just pure escapism, um, nice special effects, and just, just a, a fun movie. Hmm. Brilliant. And Dave? Uh, I'm actually, well, I've got a couple of things I'm reading again. Uh, I won't mention the first one because I mentioned it already. Um, but the, the one I am looking at again from a while ago is The Dice Man, which is a great book. It's got some of the most fantastic uh, kind of vignettes in it that I've ever read. The lovely moment where he describes his first ten, sessions, ten seconds of consciousness that are pure sensation and then he starts thinking and his day is screwed. It's you know, you think, yeah, we've all been there. And it's a great book. I'd recommend it to anyone. Author? Can't remember offhand, actually. All right, okay. Uh, well, it'll be in the show notes. It'll be in yeah. the show notes by our, our wonderful new podcast officer. Eve, would you like to suggest anything this week? I would, actually, since it's Burns Night tonight. I'm no, going to recommend... Yes, it wow. is. I'm going to recommend a book by a relatively new Scottish publisher called Two Ravens Press, and it's a book called Prince Rupert's Teardrop by Lisa Glass. Um, and I'm reading it for the second time now, um, and it deserves at least two read-throughs, and and I might be able to squeeze one more out of it. It's a real bargain book. <laughs> um, it's fantastic. So many layers, and you can easily read it again and find aspects that didn't quite hit you the first time around. But it isn't for the faint-hearted, I have to say. There's a chapter that explores the Armenian genocide, and it's fairly brutal and graphic, but it's a fabulous, fabulous book. So Fantastic. I'm recommending that. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Eve. Um, Donna? I'm going to recommend a book that I'm reading right now that I got for Christmas, um, Stephen King's On Writing. It's it's an old book, but it's been, um, uh, it's just wonderful. It's uh, It goes autobiographical from how to how he threw out the first four pages of Carrie and his wife dug them out to uh, some very specific advice on writing that is quite inspiring. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree with that too. It's, it's one of the books that I, that I recommend. And Richard? Well, uh, I've got quite a story with mine. I wanted to go and see the new Coen Brothers film, No Country for Old Men. Uh, particularly since it's up for the Oscars, uh, whereas I might not go for books that have won awards, I wanted to go to movies that are up for awards. Unfortunately, uh, living in the culture capital of England, not, uh, it's not showing in any of the cinemas, any of the four cinemas in the local vicinity. So I kind of put paid to that. And um, then I'd have talked about a a new book coming out by M.G. Harris, uh, the Joshua Files, because I'd heard that uh, it was on the shelves two weeks early in Oxford, and I thought <laughs> into my uh, local Waterstones and pick it up. And unfortunately, they didn't have it. Uh, what they did have was uh, Cormac McCarthy's uh, No Country for Old Men, uh, half price. So I bought that instead. Right. Just finished it just before starting the podcast, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the story. Brilliant characters, uh, great story. I didn't see any of the twists coming. Hmm. Um, my my only um, drawback to it is the way that he writes. Uh, dialogue has no quotation attributes, uh, and it very rarely has any he said, she said. Yeah. Um, and also, he has a, a tendency to write, and he got up from the bed, and he walked across to the door, and he looked through the peephole, and he came back to the bed, and he put on his shoes. And there's no stopping. It's all and, 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 and. Um, but aside from that, the story is very good. So I'm looking forward to seeing it when it does finally come out in the cinema or if I have to download it illegally off the internet. But that's not my fault. It's because it's not available here. <laughs> no, no, we'll cut that out. That was just for the live version, the, the sanitized version we can cut that out. Um, have you read The Road? No, I haven't. Um, one of the one of the members of uh, NAW uh, read it and recommended it on the course, actually. Yeah. Oh, I hated that. Did you? <laughs> 
I've only reached page 75. I've tried about five times to read it. And, um, and each time and you it's find they're those... still walking down that road, are they? Yes, they yes. Are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. I, and it's one of those ones that's won an award, so yeah. you think it should be brilliant. And, you know, you think there's something wrong with me that I can't get it. And, and I keep trying. And no, uh, 75, page 75 is the most I've got to. <laughs> so, certainly, I don't rate him. Don't rate him as a writer, but I do rate him as a storyteller. Anybody else read The Road? Afraid not. I've got very mixed feelings about The Road. I think it's um, it was a book. Uh, perhaps it's a bit hard to say this, but I think it was a book written to to win awards. Actually, it is it is very well written. Um, I find the minimalist plot a, a, a bit disturbing. He has a poet's very you know very very well developed sensitivity for style and language, which he displays very elegantly. Um, but there is a, there is a certain cold bloodedness about it that. Um, that I find just a little bit off-putting. But I would say, you know, an, an author at the height of his powers and well worth getting into. Now, it's it's about time for us to, to wrap up this evening. Before we do, I've got a special announcement just really for anyone who's listening live, actually, in the UK at this very moment. Uh, this Friday night, next Friday night, and the Friday night after that... So I might put a little bit of uh, a notice up in, in Latopia about it. If you switch on your television sets in approximately um, five minutes, you will see on ITV1 something called Moving Wallpaper that's directed by our old friend oh, of the Latopia yes. uh, podcast, Andrew Gilman. I'll just explain about this. If, while I explain, you can be warming up the television set. Echo Beach, which is um, part of this sort of series, is set in the fictional coastal town of Polnaren in Cornwall which is quite near Dave, really, except it doesn't exist, and will follow the lives of ex-lovers Daniel Merrick, Jason Donovan, and Susan Penwarden, Martin McCutcheon, whose complicated affairs have played out amongst teenage angst, family loyalties, and tested friendships. Well, so far, so good. I suppose that all sounds a bit formulaic. What isn't formulaic is that there's another series that's deeply intertwined with this called Moving Wallpaper. It's a behind-the-scenes comedy which follows Echo Beach's fictional producer, Jonathan Pope, played by Ben Miller, and the team at Echo Beach Productions where the army of executives, crew and publicists behind the soap will be taken to the brink of insanity by their irrepressible producer. And as I say, um, our old friend of the Topia podcast, Andrew Gilman, from whom we will be hearing a lot more in future, um, has directed the next three episodes of that, so you might just like to to switch on and, and look at that. So from this episode of Latopia After Dark, in which you have learnt that the next big titles in the Misery Memoir um, Jean are going to be uh, Daddy was Mummy's Mummy, I was an accident and Mummy took my fingers <laughs> You see, this is nothing if, if not educational Have the right with toes Anyway, I, I just want to say a very, very big thank you to Beverly Gray, Dave Bartram, Donna Baldwin, Eve Harvey, Richard Howes The time has gone very quickly Why don't we all meet up again next week and do the same Thanks for listening, take care everybody Cheers Bye Now for the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Latopia Writers Colony, www.latopia.com. If you've enjoyed it, please give us some good word of mouth and tell all your friends about us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found at www.latopia.com slash podcast. If you're not already subscribing to the podcast through iTunes, and remember iTunes works both on the PC and the Mac, then we suggest you do so right now. You'll find it by far the easiest method of listening. Full instructions on the Latopia website. And if you do use iTunes, why not give us a review there too? Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your thoughts, comments, views, and suggestions. There's a handy and easy-to-use comment form on the Latopia website itself, but also you can send us an email, or you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at latopia.com. This is Peter Cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon.